Well, good morning. If we haven't uh, met, my name is Randy Binkley. I'm on the uh, pinch hitting teaching team here. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I'm working a little bit of a cough. So I got my water and we'll get through this, but uh, uh, start there. I'd like to begin with a question for you this morning. How many of you would say that when you think of your life, when you think of maybe what you do at work or, or a hobby you have or an interest you have, in some area of your life, you would say that you, you've got a little bit of some skills. You're a skilled workman. You're maybe, maybe a craftsman in some particular area. You know, in that particular zone, you have the tools you need. You know how to use them. You have a little experience using them. And I know you're trying very hard to be humble here. But uh, set that aside for a moment. And how many would say that, you know, in, in some particular area, yeah, I guess I'm a little bit of a skilled workman. Raise your hand if you would uh, put yourself in that category. Okay. So if you want to refinish your bathroom, look around. This is the people you need to talk to. <clears throat> this morning, I want to take a look at one area where the Bible says that all of us who are children of God are called to be a skilled workman. We're, we're called to have some tools and to know how to use those tools uh, and it's something that all of us as children of God, uh, God wants us to be a little bit of a craftsman in this area. Now, LCF, <coughs> if you've been around here, uh, has been blessed since I think its inception of having an awful lot of good teachers here, and that's a great thing. But every one of us as a child of God needs to learn how to be a skilled workman in this area of kind of working with the Word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Now be diligent... In other words, don't just try, but this is one of those things that we need to be good at. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So we need to learn how to accurately handle this thing called God's word. We're all called to do that. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us how powerful a tool this is when it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, do you want to know how to walk in God's ways? Do you want God's guidance and direction in your life? Do you want to be trained for righteous living? Do you want to be equipped for godly living? God says, I got all that right here. I put it in this book for you. This is your resource. Learn how to accurately handle God's Word. This is an important area. In the theological studies, the word for learning how to accurately handle God's Word is a word called hermeneutics. It comes from the Greek word hermeneo, which means to translate or, or to interpret. And it's important we learn how to do this because in the, in the Bible, there's a variety of genres of literature, and we need to know how to interpret them correctly. For example, in the beginning, there's some books of the law. So we need to know, how do I read that and, and understand what God has for me out of that? It's followed by some books of history. and In fact, we're studying right now through a book of history in the New Testament, Acts. So when I'm reading First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, when I'm reading this history of he went there and he did this and he did that and said this, what, what do I do with that in terms of finding meaning for my life? That's hermeneutics. We get into wisdom and poetry, Psalms and Proverbs. So how do I read that and then come away with knowing what God wants me to, to do and to be 
from that. These different genres of Scripture, prophecy, gospels, epistles, letters, they're all different types of Scripture. And as we look at that, we want to be able to come to a conclusion on what exactly does God have for us and for me from that text. It's kind of important. And there's very large, thick books written on the topic of hermeneutics and how to correctly interpret these different genres of liter- literature. Probably the hardest one to interpret is the prophecy. How many of you have read a book on hermeneutics? About the most boring thing you can write a book on, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, don't read it late at night. You will go to sleep. And you know, then you'll wake up going, where was I? I'm going to save you reading that book. We're going to talk this morning about, so the question is, how do I accurately handle God's Word? Well, basically by going through uh, three steps. Number one, observation. You look at what you're, the passage you're in, and you ask the question, what does it say? And then you move to step two, interpretation. What does it mean? And then step three, application. What does it mean for me? When you approach Scripture in this way, you're accurately handling God's truth. And using this rather simple approach, you can be reading or studying any one of the 1,189 chapters in God's Word, anything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And using this approach, you can understand what God says, what He means, and what it means to you. So let's practice our biblical craftsmanship skills this morning. We're going to walk through those three questions with our text of the morning. If you've been with us, you know we've been in the book of Acts. This morning we find ourselves in Acts 13, so let's put our skills to to use here, our hermeneutical skills, and let's just walk right through it. Acts chapter 13, what does it say? Now here we're looking for the local, historical, detailed view. We obviously know that in terms of genre, this is a history book early in the New Testament. Let's read Acts 13, 1 through 11 and take it apart a bit. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there, They sailed to Cyprus, and when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word in the synagogue of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulius, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell on him, and he was, went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. We'll stop there. <clears throat> so what do we see here? Well, something's happening at the church in Antioch. 
You remember from chapter 11, most of the believers at that time were in Jerusalem, but there was a persecution in Jerusalem. So because of that persecution, the believers scattered. And some of those folks went to Antioch. And not only did they go to Antioch, but guess what they took with them? The message of the gospel of Christ. And so as they hit Antioch, they start to share that message, and people are responding. And there's a church that is starting in Antioch. And Barnabas comes to help with them, and he provides a little leadership for the church, but soon it, it's growing, and God's doing things. And so then he goes and he finds Saul. He says, Saul, come on over here. We need some more teachers over here. And so they're there, and they're working, and they're just building the church at Antioch. That's what they were doing. We see that uh, from the church at Antioch, God lays on their hearts, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, for this work I have called them. And so they send them off. And so they go to Seleucia, they go to Cyprus, they go to Salamis, they go to Paphos. They share the gospel, and uh, some folks respond to Christ and become uh, members of the family of God. Some uh, oppose their message. They get run out of town on a more than one occasion on these trips. So as they bring this gospel, they find some are accepting it and believing it, some are rejecting them, and some are inciting riots and throwing them out of town. In fact, at the end of chapter 13, they're leaving a town that they just got thrown out of, and they're shaking the dust off their feet. It says, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, headed for the next city, Iconium. So it's a little bit of an adventure here. And uh, that's what we see. So observation, what does it say? Well, we've looked at the historical travel log here, haven't we? We know what it says. And that's the first step to understanding God's Word. The second one is interpretation. Okay, what does it mean? Now, to correctly answer this question, you've got to zoom out and view the text that you're looking at in the larger context of Scripture. How does this fit into God's bigger picture? Think of it this way. With each chapter that you study in the Bible, you're holding one piece of a 12,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. Now, when you're holding one piece of a 12,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and you're trying to figure out what's going on, what do you do? You grab the box, right? So you grab the box, and you're staring at the picture, the whole picture, and then you're staring at yours, and, then you, and you do this like seven or eight times, don't you, you know, with, with thoughtful contemplation. And then all of a sudden you go, aha, this is a part of the big red thing on the right. And you have context, and you start to make progress. Well, you do that with Scripture, too. You take your text, you look at the bigger context. What's going on? So if you want big context, you've got to start at the beginning. The beginning is creation, Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.27, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then only two chapters later, we fall. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve doubted God and chose to rebel, and they were removed from the presence of God. But this creative father we have so loved his children that in the very same chapter that records the fall, he demonstrates his love by beginning a path for reconciliation. Genesis 3.15, he's talking to the serpent, and he says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And in that veiled statement, God the Father is demonstrating his love for us by revealing that he was initiating a plan that would make a way for us to find our way back to him. This plan would culminate in the future with the reuniting of the creative father and his created children. We see that picture in Revelation chapter 7 in John's vision where it says, 
And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. But hang on just a second. How did we get from fallen and separated in Genesis 3 to children reunited, reunited with God the Father for all of eternity in worship? Well, you got there through this thing called this plan of redemption. God the Father started in process this path back, this plan of redemption. And from Genesis 3 till today, God has been inviting his people in history to join with him and play roles in this plan of redemption. By understanding God's plan of redemption, we see how different people have played key roles and had divine assignments along this path. It started with a guy named Abram, Genesis 12:3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So it started with God saying to a guy, I've got an assignment for you. Go. Leave her. God's redemptive plan continued as this man became a family. Now that was... Kind of a big deal because, you see, Abram and Sarah were old and they had no children. And they began to think, well, maybe just one of my servants, you know, will carry this plan on. But in Genesis 15, God says, no, I've got another plan. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look up in the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall be your offspring. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So God said to Abram, let's get outside of your eight-foot ceiling. Let's get outside of this room where everything you see is made by your hands. Come stand with me. Come look up at the stars. Why don't you count them? I can't count them. Look at my ceiling. And God says to Abraham, remember who you're talking to here. Do you believe I can do this? And Abraham said, I do. God says, let's go. So Sarah and Abraham then had a son, Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob, 12 sons and one daughter. Boy, talk about a princess. You know. <laughs> well, those 12 sons were not just sons. They would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So what began as a man and turned into a family now has turned into a nation. And this nation goes down to Egypt. At first they were welcomed and then they became slaves. And they would be led out of bondage by a guy named Moses to meet God on Mount Sinai and to receive the Ten Commandments. And that nation would then wander in the wilderness for 40 years as they tried to figure out if they could trust God. They would eventually be led into the Promised Land with Joshua and Caleb. And they would take the land and then they would struggle to learn to live under God's leadership in the period of the judges. And they didn't do too well. And so then they decided they wanted to be like everyone else, and they cried out for a king. And God says, that's not a good idea. But I'm going to give you one, but it's not a good idea. And so they had some kings, and the, probably the, the best-known king was King David. And the thing that made King David probably the best, even though he was a fallen man with many flaws, the best king of those kings is that David seemed to be the one king that understood that he was a king, 
but he was not the king. The king was talked about in the prophets. The king was this coming king, not just a king, but a king of kings, this coming Messiah. And David seemed to understand that. And then in the Gospels, we see the fulfillment of those prophecies in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lion of Judah, who by his resurrection defeated death forever. And it's in this moment that we kind of find ourselves in Acts chapter 13. So a new season has begun here. We are in a transitional moment of God's redemptive plan. Up to this point, it's been about being God's nation. But now things have changed. Now it's about being God's church for all the nations. And at this point in chapter 13, you really see the church unleashed on the whole world in a new way with this powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If this is a football game around Acts 13 here, this is the beginning of the fourth quarter. Okay, This is the last quarter of play. For the game. This is the church. And at the end of this quarter, Jesus returns. Uh, the game is over. The game is won. And there's a victory celebration in heaven. So give the uh, disciples a little slack here as you read through these pages in, in Acts. Because it was just hard for them to get their heads out of the old Nation of Israel playbook and into this new Church for the World playbook. It was a transition. It was different than they ever had known before. This was a new day, and God had some new assignments for his people. Before this time, God's people were kind of tethered to a piece of geography, and they were tethered to one national identity, but not anymore. Now it's game on. The church unleashed the message of the gospel for the whole world. So the Holy Spirit comes to the church at Antioch, and he says, Guys, it's time. Barnabas and Saul, pack your bags. You're going on a road trip. Now, in retrospect, this was kind of a big deal. I mean, we just read it, and it looks like an assignment. But it was kind of a big deal because this was the start of what would be called the first missionary journey, this concept of taking the gospel to the whole world. This journey is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. In chapter 15, you see a second missionary journey. In chapter 18, you see a third missionary journey. And then you see Paul traveling from Jerusalem to Rome and sharing the gospel through that route. So this rather humble start we have here in 13.2, for Paul anyway, would foreshadow a lifetime assignment of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if we stay in our big picture perspective, we should remember that we are playing in the same quarter Paul was. If Paul was kind of the start of the fourth quarter, we may be about halfway through the fourth quarter. But the church really is the last quarter of play. The next event is the return of Christ, game over victory party in heaven. So the second step to accurately understanding and handling God's word is don't look at just what it says observation, but fit it into the larger context interpretation to help us understand meaning. What it, why is this meaningful in the big picture of what God's doing? The third point of good hermeneutics is application. What does it mean for me? Application can be for us as a group, the body of Christ, or for me as an individual. This is where the Holy Spirit kind of guides each of us into the specific application and action items of truth in our lives. And this can be unique to everybody. Uh, this is a very personal thing where God's Holy Spirit takes revealed truth and makes it 
real. This is what Randy needs to hear today. This is what Doug needs to hear today. He makes it specific and applies it. Here is where we look for the timeless truths, the biblical principles that speak to what God wants to see happening in our lives, our church, and our world today. And the thing that stands out the most in Acts chapter 13 that probably makes this chapter the, the most famous is this divine assignment that the Holy Spirit gave to Barnabas and Saul. So let's just take a look at that for a minute. Let's think of this question. How does God guide us? How does God direct our paths? How do we know the will of God for our lives? Let's take a look at this, some of the things we could learn from watching this one. Number one, one thing I see is that divine assignments flow out of God's redemptive plan. Let's remember that this is not us thinking up ideas that we can help God out with. This is not us saying, ooh, ooh, God, here's an idea. I just thought of this one. Why don't you try this? Bet you this will work. That's not it at all. Okay? These assignments flow out of the Father's redemptive plan. They're not really our ideas. In Acts 9.15, remember, before Saul had spent one single day serving the true and living God, God the Father knew exactly what his role was going to be and how it would end. So when he told Ananias to you know, go talk to Saul, and Ananias says, excuse me, do you know who that guy is? <laughs> do you know? he's, he's rounding us up. <laughs> you, I'm not, you want me to talk to him? And God says, absolutely, I want you to talk to him because I'll tell you why. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. You see, our creator, God, he knows us better than we even know ourselves. So he knows best what role that we play and can play in his redemptive plan. God had a very specific plan for Paul's life that would bring him glory. And I believe God has a very specific plan for my life and for your life that will bring him glory. And as we play our part in his loving redemptive story by discovering our divine assignments and walking through those, he accomplishes that. Another thing I see here is the Holy Spirit communicates divine assignments at the right time. 13.2 was the right time. Chapter 12 would have been too early. Chapter 14 would have been too late. God's assignments are always time-sensitive. They're never too early. They're never too late. They come at just the right time. So I'm going to encourage you. You know, when you sense God giving you a divine assignment, He lays something on your heart, something to do, a, a way to participate in this grand scheme of what He's doing in the world, the best time to respond to that is right away. Because God is not only in the assignment, He is also in the timing of that assignment. And we may not understand its urgency, and I would say most of the time we don't understand the urgency. But isn't it amazing? I'm sure you've experienced the same thing I had. You've been walking along, and you know, you're just walking with the Lord, and all of a sudden you just sense that God's really kind of calling you to do something. You just sense that God's giving you a divine assignment to do something, and and you think about it, and you think, well, that's not usually what I do, or that's not how I do it. seems kind of strange. But you just you, you got this prompting that God wants you to do it, so you do it. And then after you do it, there's a person somehow involved on the other end, and then they look at you, and their eyes get really big and wide-eyed, as in, how did you know? <laughs> and, of course, you didn't know. We didn't know. But... They had a need. They were talking to God. God's coming over here, and the Holy Spirit prompts you, and you just do what you, you know, you just do what you're asked to do, even though it seems a little funny or unusual, and it meets their specific need at that moment. 
We don't know the timing, but God knows the timing. And so promptings are, are time sensitive. The Holy Spirit communicates divine assignments to those who are listening. In 13.2, notice they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and it was in the midst of that very normal daily obedience and service to God that this important assignment came. You see, they were just being available. They were just being faithful in the small things. And as they were doing that, then God entrusted them with a bigger thing. The Holy Spirit communicates divine assignments with the confirmation of the body. This is not Paul and Barnabas just coming up with their own idea and heading out. You know, it just says there in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit seemed to just communicate to Paul, Barnabas, and the leadership, this is what I want. It doesn't tell us how. We'd kind of like to know how, wouldn't we? I mean, was this a voice? Was this writing on the wall? I mean, it seems like it was so evident everybody got it, okay? Um, But we don't get the how because the how is not really that important. What's important is the message. The message was to go. And I think when we have divine assignments, I would just say you don't pull to find God's will for your life. In other words, you don't go around to everyone you know trying to figure out what God's will for my life is. Everybody gets a vote, and we're going to go with the majority vote. That's not it at all. But I am saying, though, that there should be an affirming and confirming response of those who know God well and know you well as you proceed down divine assignments. In other words, the people around you that walk with God and know you, when you kind of share your 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 leading, your guidance, whatever, you know, you probably ought to see their head kind of bobbing up and down. You probably ought to see them kind of saying, you know, I see that. I think God might be in that for you. There was a confirming role of those who were not going on this trip, those who stayed in Antioch and fasted, prayed, and laid hands and released. They said, yeah, God's in that. The Holy Spirit communicates divine assignments with enough information to get started, verse 3. If you were to have stopped Paul and Barnabas before they headed out and peppered them with questions, where are you going, how are you going to support yourself, how long are you going to be gone, how do you think this is going to be received, this is kind of a new thing, us going to them, do you think this is going to amount to anything, isn't there some danger here? You know, you could have asked a hundred questions. Their responses would have all been the same. (laughs) We we don't have any idea. I don't know what to tell you. I I don't know any of that. All I know is uh, God said, go. And so the God who said go will be the God who will be with us every day that we are going. And in those days, we'll provide for our needs. He'll provide guidance. He'll provide direction. He'll provide protection. He'll provide the words to say. We don't know what we're getting into. Divine assignments start with enough information to get started. But it's assumed this will be a walk of faith and that the same God who started you will be the same God who walks you through every day. Divine assignments are communicated, the Holy Spirit communicates divine assignments with the expectation of action. Verse 2, go. Verse 3, they're gone. (laughs) That's pretty good. That's pretty good. You know, we might put about 15 verses in there. Well, I'm going to think about it, and I'll pray about it, and i got plans to make, and, you know, we were going to go on vacation next February. Could we, you know, we would do all that. No, no, no. Go, gone. One of the guys in that group you know, that was praying about this, who was not going, who was going to stay in Antioch, was the brother of Jesus, James. And, uh, you know, he would write later in James 1.22, hey, prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So he would kind of say, you know, when God lays a divine assignment on your heart, 
you know, just do a Nike. Just do it. Just go. Three, divine assignments allow us to see firsthand the power of the gospel engaging and overcoming the opposition of the world. So at this point, you're just not reading in the Bible about the power of God at work in other people's lives. You're seeing it firsthand. You're seeing the power of God working in and through you as you receive and run with the assignments that God brings your way. So we find application in this historical book in the timeless truth that just as the Holy Spirit gave Barnabas and Saul (coughs) a divine assignment in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit today is still giving divine assignments to his children today. Some of these assignments might be super brief. It might be a 10 to 15 minute passing intersection with somebody's life, then you'll never see them again. Some of these assignments you might have your whole life once you get it, until you die. I'll get some this week, you'll get some this week. But remember, we talked about when uh, we're interpreting the word correctly, we always take our passage, our text, and we fit it into the larger context. Remember? So let's pause for a moment and think about that for just a second. This passage seems to kind of be about uh, God's guidance, God's direction in our lives, God's divine assignments, if you will. Have you ever, uh, let's pause for a minute and just say, well, what does the rest of Scripture now then teach us about knowing God's will and knowing what He wants for our lives? Because I would submit to you that if, if this was the only text in the Bible about how God leads us and guides us, you might end up with a slightly off-center view of knowing and doing God's will. Have you ever pondered the question, God, what is your will for my life? (laughs) I think if you're a believer, we've all spent some time on that one. So let's take a look. Good hermeneutics. Take your passage, zoom out, look at the rest of the teaching. how How do these divine assignments fit into the larger question of knowing and doing God's will today? So let's take a look at that. I think that if, if, we weren't, if we just used this text only, you could fall into the fallacy of, kind of what I call find the hidden dots. It's kind of like I'm sitting here, my life is in front of me, and there's all of these dots. And uh, there's, I believe God has a will for my life, but I don't know which one it is. And there's thousands of dots, but somehow I've got to figure out what his will is. So what, what school am I supposed to go to? Is it Nebraska? Is it Mizzou? Is it Kansas? And I mean, there's one dot that is God's will for my life, and I, I don't want to miss it. So I've got to figure this out, and I kind of agonize over that, don't I? It makes me a little anxious because I don't want to miss it. And, and so then I've got to figure out what school I go to. I've got to figure out who am I going to marry? Am I supposed to marry Susie or Jane? I don't want to miss this. There's only one. And then I got to figure out what my career is going to be, what my job is going to be, where I'm going to live. Do I, do I buy this house? Or, and there's all these hidden dots. And this can be one view of how people see the will of God in their life, that they've got to somehow navigate this course of hidden dots. And there's a fear, isn't there, that if somehow you were supposed to marry Susie and you married Jane, your life has gone off trajectory of God's will and you'll never get it back. Well, that's kind of scary. But if we look at the bigger picture of what does the Bible really teach about knowing and doing God's will, we see there's a better way to understand it than that. There's a better approach. If you think of God's will, 
Sometimes it's not a bad idea to take a look at how David prayed about it. In Psalm 143, verse 10, David prayed, Lord, teach me to do your will. Notice he didn't say, teach me to understand your will. He did not say, teach me to know your will. He did not say, help me to find your will. He didn't say, God, please disclose your will, reveal your will, or manifest your will. He said, Lord, teach me to do your will which carries the presupposition and the assumption that it's not a matter of information, but it's a matter of obedience. It wasn't a matter of knowing it. It was a matter of doing it. He doesn't ask God to reveal his will. He simply says, I'm asking you, but empower me to do it, which assumes that he knew what it was. If God has a will, and he does, And if he wants you to know it, and he does, and if he holds you responsible for it, and he does, then you can make sure he's not going to hide it from you. In fact, he would probably place it in a very obvious place. And the most obvious place he could put it is in his word. So we could read it every day. You can know the will of God for your life from Scripture with absolute certainty. Let's talk about that for a minute. This is getting the bigger picture. It's God's will that you be saved. God's will starts with you being saved, which means committing your life in repentant faith to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 1 Timothy 2.3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. You can know with absolute certainty it's God's will that you make that choice to invite Christ in your life as your savior. You can know with absolute certainty that it's God's will for you to be spirit-filled. Ephesians 5:17 and 18 says, "So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine for that's a dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The word there, filled, is the Greek word plureo, which has this concept of a filling in a controlling sense, not a static sense. Think of it this way. Think of a, of a sailboat out on a lake, and it's, it's got a good wind, and it's under full sail. That wind is controlling both the direction and empowering the movement of that boat, isn't it? He says, let, let that be how your life is, that the Holy Spirit is empowering the direction and the movement of your life. Be controlled, be spirit-filled. It's God's will that we're sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. And he starts off very simply, for this is the will of God. You remember, he almost can't make it any more straightforward for us, can he? For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, what does this mean? Well, it gets real practical. It says, stay away from all sexual sins. Somebody might say, well, how far away? Now, far enough away that you are separated from sexual sin. This is very practical stuff. Why? Because that's God's will for your life. It's God's will for that we are submitted In James 4, 7, it says, Submit, therefore, to God. This is where we figure out (coughs) that there is a God, and it's not you. 
that there is a God and it's not me. Have you figured that one out yet? And when we figure that out, we change course, don't we? We, we change from a life that has been lived for no other reason, reason than serving myself to a life that is now lived to serving God. Because I've figured out there is a God and it's not me. This is where we come to that point in life where we're submitted to the king of kings. And we, we've realized a very important truth about life, which is it's not about me. It's about Christ because I'm submitted to the king of kings. And not only do I submit to the king of kings, God says it's, it's my will that you would also submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21, it's talking about submit to one, one another. That means have meaningful relationships with one another where you look out for each other's needs, not just your own. That's submitting to one another. And he also says even submit to governing authorities, which we find a little hard to buy sometimes, but hey, that's in the Bible too, 1 Peter 2.13. So this life of submission where I realize I'm not the king, but there is a king, and, and I'm serving him. It's God's will that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ 1 Peter 4.13 says, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So the picture here is you're doing what is right, and you keep doing what is right, <coughs> And then you start to suffer for doing what is right. That there's a cost that's now involved. And you endure that suffering. And while doing that, you entrust your soul to a faithful God. And you are, in a sense, following the example of Christ, who, being perfect, still suffered. Here we learn that suffering plays a role in what God wants to do in our lives. Suffering has an effect on us, of perfecting us. Now, we're not talking here about sinful suffering, suffering for doing what is wrong. That's called discipline. But God wants us to live as such godly people in this broken and fallen world that at times that may bring some reproach, some scorn, some difficulty, some cost into our lives. But God says even in those moments of suffering, God says, I can use that to continue my sanctifying, perfecting work in your lives. James 1, 2 through 4 captures this kind of mind-blowing truth. When it says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's God's will also that we stay thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says this, In everything, give thanks. Why? Well, because it says, this is God for you. I want to know God's will for my life. Okay, be thankful. That's God's will for your life. A constant grateful heart. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Is that what your life is like? So what is God's will for your, for your life and my life? Well, it's really not a mystery at all. It's not some secret system of dots we have to figure out. God's will for our lives is like right there. It's right in front of us. 
God gave it to us so that it would be in front of us because he desires we live it. It's God's will that we're saved, that we're spirit-filled, that we're sanctified, that we're submitted, that we're sharing the sufferings of Christ, and that we're staying thankful. And you know what? If you've got those things in place after that, do whatever you want. Seriously, do whatever you want. Because if you're doing those things, you're, you're going to be a blessing wherever you're at. And whoever you marry, you're going to be a great spouse to them. And those thing, other things might be uh, wisdom choices. So, you know, go to Proverbs and read about making a good, wise choice. But they're not about the will of God. This is the will of God. And when we do these things, we are in the will of God. And we can make those choices around it. At that point, do what you want because God is controlling your life. And he's controlling both your desires and your direction. So the action point is not knowing God's will for our lives. The action point is doing it. So be saved, be spirit-filled, be sanctified, be submitted, be sharing in Christ's sufferings, and be staying thankful. And then as you stay in God's word and become a craftsman with God's truth, as you open that powerful word and listen to it each day, go in whatever divine assignments God brings into your life, whatever divine assignments he fills your sail with, because that's where we get into the adventure of faith. That really is the church unleashed. You know, if you had a sailboat, I guess you could go out on a nice day and you could leave the sail down, you could leave it moored to the dock, and you could have a, a nice little lunch and be a sunny day, and I guess that would be okay. That's really not what sailboats are for, though, is it? What you want to do, you want to get the sail up, you want to get out in the middle of that water, you want that wind filling your sail, you want that boat 45 degrees leaning off the edge, enjoying the adventure of sailing. And that's exactly what God wants for us. We are blessed here today because Paul and Barnabas said yes to their divine assignment in the past. Here's a question to think about. Who is going to be blessed tomorrow? Because you and I said yes to our divine assignments today. So church, I'm going to leave you with an encouragement to do three things this week. Number one, pray like David. Teach me, O Lord, to do your will. Listen for the Holy Spirit's divine assignments and then boldly step in to those assignments. And as you do that, be the church unleashed. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing.